let's open our word, let's open the word of God to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39, starting with verse 1. Now, we are in a series called Where is God? We've been talking about where God is and what we can count on from him in times, uh, good times and bad times throughout our lives. We're looking at the life of Joseph who experienced a lot. He's got, he, two weeks ago, we looked at how uh, his, his family sold him into slavery because he was the favorite son and his brothers resented him. So they sold him into slavery, convinced their dad that he'd been attacked and mauled by, by a wild animal. And he was carried away far from his family, never to see them again as far as he knew. And so we talked about where is God when life seems to fall apart? Last week, we talked about Joseph's brother, Judah, who was really a self-centered person, a, a cruel person, really seems almost like a sociopath in that he's only thinking of himself and doesn't care who he hurts. And then all of a sudden, God confronts him with his sin and, and he becomes a new person, a person who's willing to help others and give others, uh, give of himself to, to save others. And we talked about how God, uh, when we fail, when we let him down, he is there to forgive us and transform us. So today I wanna talk about temptation and where is God when we're tempted to do wrong? Has that ever happened to you? Of course it has. When I was a young preacher boy, it was my second sermon. First sermon I ever preached was on Mother's Day, 1993. I preached to my church home, the home people that I grew up with. That was a very, I was scared to death, but still, it was, it was a very safe environment. The second time I ever preached a sermon, I was the youth minister at a little church in the country west of Fort Worth. I was a seminary student, and I was doing that job part-time. My, my pastor had said on a Sunday night one time, hey, you want to take Sunday night tonight? Absolutely. Man, I would... I would I would go anywhere to preach. So I got up and preached that night, and, and I was trying to make the point that when we become Christians, we don't become perfect. We're still sinners, just saved by grace. And I, I made the point that if you, if you come to know Christ, your, sin, your sins don't go away, your temptations don't go away, you still have to rely on the Lord. And the illustration I used was, so if you're an alcoholic, before you become a Christian, you accept Jesus, you still have that urge to drink and you'll have to overcome it through the Holy Spirit and through uh, the, the help of the church and it takes time. And I'm in the middle of making that point and I hear this deep bass voice from the back of the congregation say, no, sir. And I said, excuse me? And then I recognized the man who had spoken. He was a real respected guy in the church. He said, I was an alcoholic. I came to know Jesus Christ. And from the day I asked Jesus into my heart, I haven't wanted another drink. Now, let me just share with you something about us preachers and the weird way we work. You ever, you ever been to a black church and, or seen it on TV and how they talk back to the pastor and, and, and there's a lot of amen and there's a lot of, you know, reinforcing what he's saying. And some people have said to me, wouldn't that be distracting? No, on the contrary. We preachers love that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it just lets us know we're connecting. You, you know, you say amen, uh, it's going to help me. But if, if you want to disagree with me, that's fine, just, just wait until it's over, okay? You know, if you, you call out your disagreement in the middle, um, it, my sermon's not gonna get better at that point, okay? And, and especially back then when I was half the age I am now and, and I've, I, I was scared to death and didn't know what I was doing. And let me just say that significantly threw me off my game. And I don't know if the first half of that sermon was any good, but after that, it went way downhill. And I'm glad there's not a tape of that somewhere. I hope there's not. But anyway, I, I, I talked to him afterwards. He apologized to me. He said, listen, I just, I just had to share that. I just feel like if the Lord is in your heart, you don't struggle with these things anymore. And I believed that he was being honest about his own struggle with alcohol. And I believed that when Christ came into his life, he miraculously delivered him from that. But is that, 
what we can expect for all temptations. You know, some people think that when we feel tempted, it's God putting us to the test, that God's up there saying, okay, I set it up where she has this opportunity to make this big mistake. Let's just see what happens. Is that what temptation is? I've talked to other people who feel very ashamed of themselves for being tempted. They're like, man, I I don't know why. I still feel tempted in this way. I I thought I was stronger than this. They feel a lot of shame around the fact that they feel temptation. So what does the Bible actually say about it? This story tells us a, a story of Joseph facing a very significant temptation, how he responded, and what God, what we know about God based on this story. So look, look at verse 1 with me, Genesis 39 verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Joseph is now the slave of an important man in Egypt. And you would think, okay, he's gone from favorite son to slave. And yet God's plans are still intact. And yet God is still working in his life and God is still prospering Joseph in all he does. In fact, the, the, his master sees this and he says, this kid, this kid gets things done. This kid has been a blessing to me. I'm going to advance him. He becomes the most trusted of all the servants in Potiphar's house. God still has a plan for Joseph. He hasn't given up on him yet. The theme of Joseph's life is there's nothing that can happen to you or me that is so evil that it thwarts God's plans. God can take the worst thing the devil can come up with and turn it into good. So be encouraged. Now let's go on, verse six. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in his charge, with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, ladies, just like your husband, right? Right? Okay. So verse seven, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then Could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Remember that sentence. We're going to come back to it. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Now, let me just say that we don't know what Potiphar's wife looked like. So I don't know how you're picturing her in your mind, but what we do know is this. What I know as a man is this. We men don't no, most of us don't really experience being pursued like that. I know I don't, thankfully. And, and I do know from talking to men who've stumbled into adultery that it's usually something similar to this. Not necessarily a woman throwing herself at this man, but, but a situation where a man doesn't feel all that great about himself and suddenly here's this person of the opposite gender 
who sees him with stars in her eyes, who sees him as big and strong and handsome and amazing and intelligent and capable, and he's never really been made to feel that way, at least not in a long, long time. And all of a sudden, that feeling is intoxicating, and he wants more of that. That's how, that's how adultery often starts. And think about Joseph. Joseph was a man who's Self-esteem couldn't have been lower. He was not even a man anymore. He was just a slave. He was property. And now suddenly the, the pampered wife of his boss has eyes for him. Think about also the fact that Joseph knew that if he said yes to temptation, if he agreed with her plans, his life would get significantly easier in the short term. Here's a, a wealthy woman who could pour out her benevolence on you and had, could make you the object of all her generosity. On the other hand, if you reject her, man, a woman like that could make your life miserable. He, he had a real choice to make here. This is a real temptation. So what does he do? Verse 11, let's go on with the story. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he, has le le he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept this cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, let's just stop there. We'll get to the rest of the story next week. Let me just point out three details about what just happened. Number one, the garment was still in her hands. Please understand, Joseph didn't say, oh, excuse me, Mrs. Potiphar, let me take this coat off and hand it to you while I make my escape. No, she ripped it off his back. She was holding on to him so firmly that the only way he could get away was to leave what he had with her. That tells you how aggressive the situation was. Secondly, secondly, note the anti-Semitism here. This is really the first time in the scriptures where we see a note of this, where she says to the, to the fellow slaves and also to her husband, this Hebrew, this Hebrew has come to make fun of me, to make me look like nothing. He has come to hurt me. And she even blames her husband, the, the Hebrew slave that you brought here. He attacked me. Third, notice that Joseph is put in prison. Now, in, in every other situation, in that culture, in that time, if you were charged with attempted rape, and if the charge is stuck, you were put to death. Much less the wife of a prominent man like this woman. So why is it that Potiphar, whose, whose anger burned within him, why did he put him in prison? And we find out later it's the prison, that the facility is actually in his own house. It's part of his own building. I think what it shows us, and all the text doesn't say this, it's just us making an inference, but what it shows us is that Potiphar wasn't absolutely convinced that Joseph was guilty. 
Maybe he knew what kind, of wife, what, what kind of woman his wife was. Maybe he knew what kind of man Joseph was, the kind of character he'd seen in him. Maybe those two things just told him, I, I need to make sure before I put this kid to death, I need to make sure he's really guilty. Now, the question I want to ask is, what does God do with us when we're in Joseph's situation? What does God do with us when we're tempted to sin? And how can he help us overcome? Because I don't know about you, but I identify with, with something, a couple of things we sang today. Nathan sang a song a moment ago, and, and one of the lines I wrote down was, head full of rocks, heart made of stone. Did that, did that sound like anybody you know? It sounded like me. I don't know about you. And then in that old hymn that we sang earlier today, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm just now realizing that wasn't in this worship service, but y'all go with me, okay? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Those words were written hundreds of years ago. That's me. Is it you? Don't you have a heart that's prone to wander? Don't you, don't you constantly find yourself tempted to do the wrong thing? And I don't know about you, but with me, it's those four or five particular sins that I keep stumbling into, those temptations that keep hitting me, and I'm tired of it. I want to do the right thing. I'm tired of doing wrong. So what does God do? Three things we know from the scriptures, from this story at least. Number one, we know that he doesn't shield us from temptation. See, this is something you might not know about God. God God doesn't protect us from temptation all the time. Look at Joseph. God was in charge of Joseph's life. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what kind of woman Potiphar's wife was, and yet he allowed Joseph to be in this situation. He He could have rescued Joseph from that house. He could have sent him somewhere else. He could have been the slave of some widower with no wife at all, God left him in that house knowing he would have to face this test. You know, it's different from us. We as parents, as earthly parents, we want to put our kids in situations where they are most likely to succeed. In fact, if we see a high likelihood of failure, we want to remove our kids from that. You know, if little Johnny's not getting to play on the little league team, we, we move him to a different team so he's not discouraged. We, if, if little Susie's not doing well in second grade, we want to put her in a different elementary school so she doesn't have a hard time. And I'm not saying that's wrong. My parents did that with me between third and fourth grade because I was having a difficult time. What I am saying is it's, it's under, interesting that God doesn't always do that for us. That God puts us in situations where there's a high likelihood we could fail and just says, Okay, will you trust me? Let's see what you do. Let's, will you trust me? Will you, will you follow me? Will you do the right thing? This is an opportunity for you. Having said that, I don't want you to think that God is setting up situations just to test us. That's not what the scriptures say. In fact, I want to show you James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. We are tempted because we're human and we have flesh and we have desires. It's, it's, not, it's not because God's up there saying, let me see if I can trip her up. Uh, let me see if I can make him stumble. No, it's we lead ourselves into temptation. God just chooses sometimes not to protect us and and let us fight it out on our own with his help. The second thing I want you to see, Hebrews 4.15, one of the more astonishing scriptures in the Bible. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet 
without sin. Our high priest is who? Anybody know? Jesus, good. Don't you like it when I ask you easy questions? Uh, yeah. Hey, we're in church. Yeah, I think it's Jesus. Yeah. Our high priest is Jesus. The great thing about Jesus is he lived a life in our shoes with human flesh like ours, and yet he never sinned. He never said the wrong thing. He never did the wrong thing. He never thought the wrong thing. When there was something to do, he did it. And the other thing that's great about Jesus is he had human flesh like us. He had desires like us, and that means that he was tempted like us. And I don't just mean those 40 days in the wilderness when the devil was there trying to get him to turn stones into bread and trying to get him to, you know, jump off the top of the temple so the angels would catch him. I mean, all through his life, this verse says he was tempted in every way just as we are. I take that literally. I think that means that whatever you're being tempted with at any given time, if you talk to Jesus right at that moment, he'd say, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, I went through that. And yet, he went through that and, and chose to do the right thing. See, that bothers some people. A lot of Christians, when we get to that point, they say, okay, he was tempted, but it's not like he really wanted to sin or something. No, he, he did. Because he wouldn't have been tempted if that wasn't the case. Temptation, the very definition of temptation is, I want to do wrong. So yeah, Jesus got angry. And, and he wanted to lash out. And let me tell you something, the Son of God could have dealt out some real tail kickings. Jesus got afraid. We know it from the Scriptures. He was terrified to go to the cross, and yet he chose to go anyway. Jesus had human desires just like us. All the same desires you have. All the same desires you have. And yet he knew what was right and what was wrong, and he never let his desire carry him over the line into sin, not in his thoughts, not in his words, not in his deeds. And I say all that to say this, if that was true of Jesus, the best person who ever lived, the Son of God, then you and I don't need to be ashamed when we experience temptation. Experiencing temptation isn't a sign you're a bad person or a weak Christian, it's a sign that you're human. It's what you do with the temptation that matters. And that's what we want to talk about next. Second thing we know from the scriptures, second thing from Joseph's story, doing the right thing keeps us in the center of God's will. Doing the right thing keeps us in the center of God's will. The apostle Paul, late in his life, wrote these words. He said, I've fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul pictured life like a race that God had laid out before him. And there was a specific track he was supposed to run on. And Paul said, hey, I haven't always been perfect, but I've stayed on that track. I've done your will. I've lived out the purpose you put me here to live out. And because I've stayed on your track, I've experienced joy and I've experienced laughter and I've experienced fellowship with all my brothers and sisters. I, I've, I've experienced peace and, and, and unity and, and uh, purpose and I've gotten to change lives and, and, and impact eternity for the better. That's the way to live. That's real life. Does anybody ever have... Hot Wheels when they were kids. You remember Hot Wheels? Yeah. Or maybe your kids had them. Remember the, the Hot Wheels track? Do you ever have one of those or two of those? You know, the only bad thing, actually there's two bad things about Hot Wheels tracks. I mean, you could, you could do all kinds of stuff. You lick them together. You don't have to have a great technological mind. It's pretty simple. Just snap, snap, snap. And, and you could do loop-de-loops and you could do jumps and you could do all kinds of cool stuff. The two bad things about it. Number one, a piece of that track makes, makes a really good spanking tool if your dad can't find his belt. <laughs> Not that that ever happened to me. Number two, number two, 
just to be mean, sometimes your brother or your sister might come along and steal a section of track, right? That ever happened? And it ruins the whole thing. I mean, you, it's virtually useless. Now you're, now you're trying to roll your, your, your car on the sidewalk and it's bump, 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 and it doesn't work. It needs to be on that track. See, when we sin, what we're really doing so we're going down the track of God's life and we're saying, okay, God, here's what you want me to do. But over there, that's something I want to do. And I'm going to choose to go down my own course, not yours. I, I, wanna, I think I know better in this particular circumstance. No offense, God. You're cool and all, but I think I, think I know better right here. I'm going to go down my track. And you know what that means? That means we get off, we get off God's track. We leave God's plan. And life doesn't turn out to be all that smooth over there, does it? It's a devastating thing. God's plan for Joseph, I don't think I'm giving up too much to say that God's plan for Joseph was that he would be a prominent man, a man of power, and he was going to use that power through Joseph to change lives and actually to save, physically save, thousands of people from death. But if Joseph would have broken God's commands here, if Joseph would have would have gone his own way, slept with Potiphar's wife. Would have been the easier thing to do in the short run, but it would have meant he was leaving God's track. In, in, in real terms, if Joseph would have committed adultery here, his boss would have found out, and instead of putting Joseph in prison, he would have put him in a shallow grave. And believe you me, God could still save those thousands of lives. He just would have done it through somebody else. God's not dependent on you and me. And Joseph wouldn't have gotten to be a part of that. And Joseph's family wouldn't have gotten to be a part of that. And we'd know a totally different story. Because when we choose to sin, we leave God's track and we ruin the plan God has for us. And some of you know that. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are living right now in the deep and dark consequences of choices like that. Third thing. Third thing we know about temptation, God gives us the equipment we need to overcome temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I got to tell you, this is one of the more misquoted verses of the Bible because I'll hear Christians sometimes say, hey, the Bible tells me that God's not going to give me more than I can stand. Doesn't say that. In fact, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. People are like, hey, man, God told me I can take anything. No, God says the opposite. You are not self-reliant. I am not big and strong and can take everything. Now, what this verse says, though, is that there's never a time, never a time when we have an excuse to say, okay, you know, yeah, I slept with her, but anybody else would have done that. Anybody else in that situation would have done that. Yeah, I got mad and I cussed him out, but anybody would have done that. Anybody would have been mad enough. Yeah, I, I took that money and I know it was wrong, but considering my circumstances, considering the opportunity before me, anybody would have done that. We can't say that because God's promise is there's always a way out. There's always a choice. He's going to give us the equipment to say yes to his plan if we're willing to trust him. Joseph chose correctly. Remember that statement I told you to remember when he was talking to uh, Potiphar's wife and he said, listen, my, my master has trusted me with everything. I can't betray him. But then more importantly, he said, I can't sin against God. Think about that. His main concern isn't sinning against his master or his master's wife. 
His main concern is, if I do this, it's a sin against Almighty God. He understood something theologically a lot of people don't. Everything we do that is against God's command is really, ultimately, it's against Him. There are no victimless crimes. You may say, oh, I'm not hurting anybody. You're wounding God. Joseph understood that. He, his dad, Jacob, had been a, a wicked man, a liar, a con man, and Jacob met God at Bethel and then later on at the river Jabbok. He met God face to face in those two places and he was never the same again. And he passed his faith down to his son, Joseph. And, and Joseph did the right thing. And get this, guys, we have three things that Joseph didn't have. We have even more equipment to do right. We have the word of God. Joseph didn't have the Bible to tell him right from wrong. We have the Holy Spirit, God's spirit himself living inside of us and showing us the right way and convicting us when we do wrong. He didn't have that. We have the church. Here's Joseph in a house full of pagans. None of them were going to encourage him to do right. His fellow slaves were probably like, hey, the boss's wife, go for it. We have the church. We have God's people that we can go to and say, I'm struggling. In fact, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Can you counsel me? Can you pray for me? We have people who will uphold us and support us when we feel like we're the only one fighting the good fight. We have all those resources at our disposal. So what do we do? What do we do when we face temptation? It, it may not be a situation like Joseph's in, but for a lot of us, it will be. Or it may be something financial. It may be something else. It may be something else entirely. What do we do when we're tempted? One word, we run. Do just what Joseph did. You run. The Bible is very, very clear on this. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. That's not, just, that's not just true of sexual immorality. That's true of all sins. Turn and run the opposite way. Proverbs 6, 27, 28, very picturesque. Can a man scoop hot coals in his lap without being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without being scorched? I don't recommend you test those two statements, okay? Those are rhetorical questions. The, the answer is supposed to be No. And the point he's making is, don't, don't snuggle up to sin. Don't, don't flirt with temptation. A lot of us, a lot of us think, well, I'm not going to do the wrong thing, but, but I want to leave myself the option. Jim Dennison said it well. He said, if you say maybe to sin long enough, eventually you'll say yes. Martin Luther he said, you can't help being tempted any more than you can help the stuff that birds drop on your head when they're flying over. But that doesn't mean that you have to let them build a nest in your hair. It was probably funnier in German, you know, but, <laughs> but it makes a, a good statement. So what sins right now are you saying maybe to? What sins are you keeping close enough that you still have the option to say yes someday? What areas of your life are you letting the devil make a nest in your hair? Letting the devil take up rent space, rent-free space in your mind. Because right now is the time. In a moment, our deacons are going to come forward, and, and it's the one time in our worship where everything's quiet. There's going to be music playing, but we're not singing. We're not praying out loud. I'm not talking. It's a quiet moment. It's an opportunity for you to just go to the Lord and say, Lord, here are the ways I struggle. You know it, but I just need to acknowledge it before you. Here are the temptations that bug me. Lord, help me with them. And for those of you who would say to me today, 
you know, I wish I'd heard this sermon years ago because I've already missed it. I've already messed up. I've already stumbled. I was tested and I failed. I ruined my family. I ruined my reputation. I've ruined everything. So it's too late for me. Folks, it's never too late. You know when it's too late, actually, it's when you stop breathing, okay? But before then, the fact is, you, you sin and you break the track of God's plan. God has unlimited track at his disposal. And he will replace that track you've lost. And his plan for your life may be different from it originally was, but it's still God's plan. And it's still a plan full of joy and peace and, and eternal impact. And all you have to do is come to him and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to follow you from this day forward. Let me tell this one story, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Um, Church in Jacksonville, Florida, I read about. One day, the pastor showed up. This is a church in a really bad part of town. Showed up, and someone had broken into the church building and had stolen all their sound equipment. Soundboard, speakers, the whole nine yards, thousands of dollars worth of stuff. This was a church that was very active in in its community. And so the pastor, these are his words. He said, I went out to every thug, every crackhead I knew in that neighborhood. And I said, how could you do this to us? We've helped you. We've helped your families. How could you steal from us? And he said, within a day, all that stuff came back. He showed up and it was all back in the church building. And then not long afterwards, a guy came and was standing at his door and he said, "Uh, preacher, you know, all those thugs you talked to, they didn't steal your stuff. I did. They came and threatened me. That's why I brought it back. And he said, and and now, now I'm afraid they're going to kill me. What should I do? And the preacher said, well, I can protect you. Why don't you just stay here? And it was Sunday. He said, just, just stay here. Uh, We're going to have worship later on. You stay with us. Later on, worship started. They worshiped God on the, on the sound equipment that he had stolen. And guess what happened at the end of the service? That man gave his life to Christ. Because God, like we said last, last week, God is in the full-time human transformation business. And that's happened in the lives of many people in this room. Maybe not thieves before, but some of them perhaps. All of us, all of us sinners. And he's transformed us. And if you're a person who has not experienced that transformation, God taking you, going down this track all your own and putting you on a different track once and for all, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to come forward. While the Lord's Supper is being handed out, you come forward and say, I I need Jesus in my life. 